The following podcast includes explicit language, not restricted to words beginning with F, S, B, and Q. Hello, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of February 24th, 2020. On this week's show, we're going to discuss the big upcoming conflict between the NFL's owners and players over whether the league will expand to a 17-game regular season. We'll also talk about the ouster of Cleveland Cavaliers coach John Beeline and whether there's something to the idea that taskmaster-ish college coaches do not work in the pros. Finally, Joseph Bean Khan will join us to tell the story of Jim Walmsley, the ultramarathoning legend who's now trying to qualify for the U.S. Olympic team as a regular old marathoner. Joining me in our D.C. studio, Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak, in a few seconds of panic, ticks off marathons on a daily basis. Oh, not just one. I mean, I'm more of an ultra guy. Really? Yeah, I like to go 50, 75 miles, 100 on Saturdays. <laughs> That's your long day. Joining us from Palo Alto, Slate staff writer and the host of Slow Burn Season 3, Joel Anderson. You a 100-mile guy on Saturdays? <laughs> I'm not a 100-mile guy in 2019. <laughs> that just sounds ridiculous. But 100, 100 meters, that's more my thing. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> we do know what you're talking about, as a matter of fact. <laughs> that's right. I mean, I think it's pretty well known what I mean by that. So we don't have to say any more, but 100 meters, my thing. All right. 100 centimeters for me. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Last week, the NFL's 32 owners voted to approve a proposal for a new collective bargaining agreement. According to the NFL Players Association, so this is not owner spin, this is from the players, the proposed deal would put $5 billion more in players' pockets over 10 years, would also increase minimum salaries, decrease the amount of requisite off-season and training camp work, expand pension eligibility, eliminate game suspensions for positive marijuana tests, would also diminish the commissioner's authority to preside over discipline cases, and yet... The Players Association's executive council has recommended by six to five vote that union members not ratify the deal. And that's because of the biggest change that owners want to push through, expanding the regular season from 16 games to 17 games. In a pre-Super Bowl press conference, Richard Sherman explained what a lot of players are thinking about the owner's offer. It's, it's odd to me, and it's always odd, when you, when you hear player safety is their biggest concern. And they're, they're really standing on, you know, standing up for player safety, player <coughs> safety, player safety. But it seems like player safety has a price tag. You know, player safety up to the point of, hey, 17 games makes us this much money. So we really don't care how safe they are. Pretty well said and concisely said by Richard German. Joel, I really don't know how this is going to be resolved because it does seem like there's a lot for the players to like to the extent that there's anything to like in a collective bargaining agreement that owners are in favor of. But the 17-game thing just seems like a real existential issue for the league's players. Yeah, I don't think there's really a way 
around that. And I guess it depends on how serious you believe the NFL is about pushing for the 17th game. There's a theory that they don't want to give on all these other labor issues in terms of the share of revenue, higher min- minimum salaries, change to drug premium, that they like things fine. And that they're attaching it to the 17th game, knowing that the players will not do that. And then they don't have to give on everything else. But I can't imagine the NFL going to a 17th game anytime soon, if only because players seem to be pretty universally against the idea of it. And what Richard Sherman just said, I mean, the NFL talks all the time about player safety and all these improvements in the game to healthcare and and managing players' health. And then you add another game, man. It just doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like those two things can coexist together. Oh, but in the minds of NFL owners, they certainly coexist. Uh, Michael Bidwell, the owner of the Arizona Cardinals, just a couple weeks ago said on, in a radio interview, quote, the health safety data plays out that we can do 17 games and it's not going to impact the safety and the health of the players. Easy for you to say, dude. I am really <laughs> proud of the work the league is doing in terms of the health and safety. A lot of big strides have been made. This is how the propaganda machine works, man. It's right. like, hey, we're making helmets safer and we're changing the rules. The game is safer. Therefore, we can add more game and the net effect won't be any worse for the players. The owners approach health and safety, brain injuries and other injuries, kind of like carbon offsets. They figure that we can spend more money because we are, you know, if we're going to have more games and more potential incidents for injury and more actual injury, we can pay our way out of it. I mean, that's the approach to collective bargaining here. And Joel, I would push back on two things that you said. Number one, I think this is totally sincere by the owners. Like the game theory thing doesn't really make sense to me. Obviously, they want an extra game. Um, They're going into negotiations for a new TV deal and more inventory means more money. And that's also why we've seen this push for uh, an increase in the number of playoff teams to seven per conference rather than six. More playoff games means more money. I think of that as an either or thing that the playoff expansion is fundamentally different from adding a 17th game where you get to see an extra week or an extra team in the playoffs a better chance for more tv revenue but without having an extra game of watching the jets you know what i mean yeah but you know what the jets owners want to have the extra game because they can put people in the stadium i mean it's another 75,000 people that'll go to a shitty jets game i mean the thing that we're forgetting here is that this is the product of more than a year of talks between the Players Association and the league. This isn't the owner's management committee pulling this proposal out of their asses. Well, the other thing just quickly that I wanted to push back on is saying that it's not true that this is universally condemned by players, I don't think, because the executive council recommended that they not vote for it six to five. So even among the most, the higher ups of the players, five people said you should vote for this. And I do think that because it got this far, I don't think this is just the owner saying we want another game and more revenue. There was some buy-in somewhere from some players who were part of the negotiating process. Like, I don't have any sources on this. I don't think the players won a 17th game. I think they like the idea of everything else that's attached to what they might get if they get a 17th game, if that makes sense. Carbon offsets. On the drug policy. I mean, what did they say? 50% of the league or a little bit more than 50% of the league is on minimum salaries. So, like, that benefits a huge chunk of their workforce. But I think they're like, well, they'd be willing to play another game in exchange for all that other stuff, which is not insignificant stuff. Well, the voices that you've heard that are the loudest about being opposed to a 17th game 
J.J. Watt, Leonard Fournette, Richard Sherman are the most well-compensated and most famous players. I mean, we haven't really heard, and and maybe it's because they don't have the platform, or maybe it's because they are just being a little quieter about it because it's the famous players. Uh, or, are, they, or they don't get retweeted. Or, yeah, maybe they, they don't get retweeted. <laughs> exactly. Um, but maybe there's a lot of guys on minimum salaries um, who are willing to put their body through a 17th game to get all the extra perks. And you're right, Joel. I mean, this negotiation is... How much stuff do we have to give the players in terms of more revenue, you know, better, better weed uh, policy, (laughs) anything so we can get this 17th game? That's what this is. Absolutely. From the player's perspective, though, I think that 17 is a really dangerous number. I mean, assuming this is a 10-year deal, I'm sure they're going to be opt-outs at some point during the duration of this contract if it were to be approved. 17 a hundred percent in my mind will lead to a demand in the next round of negotiations for 18. 17 is an odd number. Teams aren't going to like giving up an extra home game every other year. They're going to feel there's some sort of competitive imbalance there. Or maybe it'll be something like eight home, eight away and one game in like London or yeah. Mexico. I mean, it's, it, it doesn't, 17 does not make sense as a long-term. No, as a long-term proposition, it doesn't. And you ain't going back. I go back to a couple of weeks ago. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the XFL and it was all the rage of sports media and now we don't talk about it. But <laughs> I, I, you're I, gonna say 15, that, I watched 15 I, I know, minutes. I'm going to say that every week until the end of the I time. didn't have to throw that in there. I'm sorry. But I, th- you, I think, think the St. Louis Battlehawks look really good on Saturday. <laughs> I know that PJ Walker's doing well. I do know that. But I think we talked about, the thing that we talked about leading into that was that people think they want more football, but a lot of football is actually really bad. And I think about the idea that there's a lot of times at the end of the season in the NFL when so many people are hurt, there's so many people out, and you're watching games between backups and everything, and the quality of the games aren't even that really, that good. And I'm just like, do we, do we really want more football? And to the extent that I agree with Mark Cuban on anything, I remember him saying about six years ago that the NFL was due for an implosion, that the idea that pigs get fed, hogs get slaughtered. And I just think that Pushing for a 17th game, thinking that people want this much football is going to be a fatal flaw in their business plan, ultimately. Well, you said the games near the end of the season start to look bad. Well, the games at the beginning of the season look really bad because yeah. <laughs> training camps have been abbreviated. Preseason is being shortened. Starters don't play much in the preseason because they shouldn't because these games are well, meaningless. You know which games actually look the worst? Thursday night games. Thursday night games. Oh, and that's, yeah. so that's Let's what look was at put, the inventory. But wait, Thursday night games is what were pushed through in the last CBA negotiation right. because the owners wanted more inventory. TV money and wanted more inventory. And the players said it would be detrimental and to health and everything else. And it's proved that that's been the case and the product is shitty. Right. So the right. first two, three weeks of the season suck. The last couple seasons of the week can suck. Thursday night games suck. At some point, people are going to catch on to this. Right. All other sports right now are having this difficulty with reduced live audience numbers, like college football, NBA, Major League Baseball. Gradually, there's this idea that people are going to shift their attention to like TV, but even TV is changing. The ways in which American society consumes TV is even fundamentally changing. And I, just the idea that they're going to try to cram in more TV content of bad football, it just doesn't seem like it's going to line up. And I've always been sort of dubious about projections because I just don't think people really can tell what, what, what five years from now is going to look like in terms of media habits. Right. I think that's exactly right, Joel. And I think that the NFL wants to get this done now 
because there is concern that in a year, we're not sure what the the landscape is going to look like. I mean, whether the networks, this could be the last deal that the networks pay, you know, the billions, or you see a, a really large increase. Or not. Or not. We still don't quite know why CBS stepped away from SEC football, which is theoretically one of the most valuable TV properties in all of TV. They had that time slot on a major network all to themselves and they walked away from it and ESPN scooped it up. Now, maybe there's some other things going on there that we can't possibly know about, some TV network gaming or whatever going on there. But eventually, at some point, these TV contracts can't keep going up. They can't keep accommodating what people seem to think is a need for football that may not necessarily be there. I would push back a little on that because the history tells us that they can keep going up and have gone up. I mean, I was writing about this 20 years ago, and there was concern that the leagues were paying too much. And some of the leagues were. I mean, there was a period of retrenchment in the late 90s and early 2000s in terms of how the networks considered these contracts. They all came running back to it. NBC tried the XFL 20 years ago, and they were back in the NFL in short order because they needed the numbers. I mean, there's no evidence that people aren't watching, right, the NFL as much as they have been. It's still the, these are still the most highly rated programs on television. And the NFL is banking on the fact that internet distribution of games is going to take off. If this is the contract where they're going to get money from whoever it is, Facebook, Twitter, whatever platform. All right, let's spin out the case for this deal for the players. I think we've already done it a little bit, which is that there might be a majority of players whose names we don't know or who don't immediately come to mind who this deal might be not a bad deal for if they're, you know, the the value of their contract is going to go up if they're going to get increased health benefits when their careers are done, if the league is going to be more sensible about marijuana policy or Goodell's discipline, his role there is going to get scaled back. There's a lot to like here. And for a player whose career might be pretty short, is the difference between having a 32-game career or a 34-game career or a 48-game career versus a 51-game career? Like, is that... Are you really going to say I don't I don't want to do this deal if, if it'll make it mean an extra five hundred thousand dollars in your pocket when your time in the NFL is over? When you're 28? No, I mean I think that's exactly right, and that's why I wonder whether this isn't partly an attempt by the players to talk this through. The owners have said this is it. We've talked for a year. This is the proposal we've come up with. Take it or leave it. If you don't take it, we're going to apply retroactively the current rules and we'll negotiate in next year. Sounds and everyone's foreboding that it'll be, you know, it'll be a strike or a lockout. It's like $64,000 pyramid. What an NFL owner would say. <laughs> yeah. So that's always the calculus, Josh, right? The veteran players know they're in it for the long term. Richard Sherman has to worry about every game, every hit, every practice. The average player who's in the league for three years wants to get paid because they're worried about running out of money by the time they're 35. Yeah, it's probably fair. And it, in some ways, if you look even further down the road, it could theoretically expand the uh, workforce because there'll be more people injured and more people that uh, <laughs> you cycle in and out of practice squads and at the bottom of the roster. Well, I think there's a provision to add two uh, roster spots to the active roster, I think, 55 instead of 53. Yeah. So there'll be two more players to get hurt. That's that's exactly Joel's point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a very bleak view. But I mean, ultimately, what we're saying is that if, when they add an extra game, it's not that you're going to see, say, Dak Prescott or Deshaun Watson for 17 games. You're going to see 
Matt McGloin for two games. And I guess if the NFL thinks that that's what the American public wants, and if that's ultimately good for the 53rd, 54th, and maybe 55th player on the roster at the end of the CBA, then I mean, that is something to consider. You guys have sort of convinced me, even just within the course of this conversation, thinking more broadly about the workforce. But I don't know, man. Football is much more boring. And maybe this is just me talking as a fan. Football is much more boring than we think it is. And I just can't imagine wanting more of it. It seems it's a certain point there's going to be a bubble burst. The bubble is going to burst on in the NFL. And I feel like this is right where it's going to be right here. The ultimate tension here for me from just an entertainment business perspective is that the NFL's kind of secret sauce compared to other leagues is scarcity. The fact that you have these, I guess, 17 weekends with the bye week and then the playoffs where there, it feels special. There is a limited supply of games both to watch on TV and to go to as a fan. I think going to 17 games, it doesn't really meaningfully change that amount of scarcity. And the fact that an NBA game or regular season game or a baseball regular season game just feels so much less important and special than an NFL game. And so I I think the owners are probably right to think that we're all just going to keep watching, that this won't meaningfully affect consumer habits. And I think the players are right, and in particular, the star players, to be concerned about what this means for their long-term health and welfare. And I think that the star players also face backlash from fans. I mean, you go to J.J. Watt's Twitter account and look at his mentions after he said hard no on this deal. It's like Hmm. 95%, fuck you. You're a privileged athlete. I don't support this. I want you to play 17 games. Yeah. Also, I mean, these are the people that are most motivated. I mean, the people that are like us that are a little bit more circumspect about it are not, you know, going to speak up there. But I do think the players are going to end up, the star players like J.J. Watt, Richard Sherman, whoever else, are going to end up being vilified by this CBA fight. The thing is, in my lifetime, from what I can tell, the owners always seem to win. You know what I mean? Like, like, when have they ever lost? Yeah. In this sport, the owners always win. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So last week before the NBA started the post-All-Star weekend portion of the season, there was this not-so-surprising coaching change. John Beeline announced that he was leaving the Cleveland Cavaliers after only 54 games. Thus ended Beeline's turbulent and mostly terrible 14-40 run with the Cavs, where he'd come after spending the previous 40-plus years in college basketball. He left the University of Michigan last spring, go blue or whatever, and signed a five-year contract with Cleveland a deal that reportedly paid him more than $4 million per season. So what would make a 67-year-old man walk away from that kind of a payday? Well, according to reports, Beeline predictably struggled to make inroads in the NBA locker room and never got much traction implementing his college offense. Players also reportedly tuned Beeline out, quickly growing tired of his screaming and dictatorial approach to management. Also, there was this infamous thugs versus slugs incident on January 8th in a Detroit hotel. That's what Beeline called his players thugs during a film session. He later insisted he meant to say slugs, which actually seems sort of reasonable given the context. 
And he tried to apologize the next day, but a number of players never really embraced his explanation. After that, whenever Beeline was within earshot, sources said players played songs like Thuggish Ruggish Bone, Thug's Mansion, and I'm a Thug. Here's a quick sample of what Beeline heard when he got on a team bus a few days later. Shout out Trick Daddy. All right, so anyway, a month later, it's all over. Stefan, couldn't we have seen all this coming last year when Beeline left Michigan? Rule number one for coaches coming into the NBA and the NFL from college is to throw the vast majority of the things that you did in college into the garbage. There is nothing that paid professional athletes hate more than being treated like unpaid professional athletes. They resent being yelled at. They resent being forced to follow silly rules or being made to practice in unreasonable ways. They resent being infantilized. It doesn't work. According to some very good reporting by Shams, Charania, Jason Lloyd, and Joe Varden at The Athletic, Beeline came in guns blazing. He couldn't handle the pushback. He was unable to adjust on a lot of levels, both player relations and NBA game style management. And it seems like the most self-awareness that he showed was in cutting his losses and quitting. Is rule number two, don't work for Dan Gilbert? (laughs) (laughs) The guy did have a stroke last year, but there does seem to be some correlation there. And I think we should get to that. So Dan Gilbert, the Cavs owner, famous for his Comic Sans letter calling LeBron a traitor or whatever it was when LeBron went to Miami, has been known to make coaching hires on his own against advice from people that actually know more about basketball. The whole David Blatt experiment did not work. There's reporting about Larry Drew, the coach after Teron Lue left, not wanting to be there and kind of bucking against what... Well, he was kind of dragooned into taking the temporary job. He was dragooned and the whole thing with Teron Lue, they won a championship, but then that didn't end up working out. He ended up like leaving a a few games into a season. And so the pattern here is... College coaches not succeeding in the NBA, sure, but no coaches succeeding with Cleveland under Dan Gilbert. Without LeBron James, especially. Well, yeah. I mean, they've had six coaches in seven years, which includes the LeBron era, which gives you, you know, sort of a, a look at the dysfunction that runs within that organization. But I think Beeline, you mentioned self-awareness, Stefan. It, Beeline in college was known as a dude who wasn't all that interested in recruiting or dealing with elite players. And like that seems like the least likely guy to get along with NBA players because you know the majority of NBA players are elite players. If you don't even want to deal with them when they have no leverage in college, how could that possibly translate in the NBA where they have all the leverage? You're basically just you're setting an organizational structure, you're shuffling minutes and everything else, you're dealing with egos, but ultimately you are not as important as the players. If you can't handle that dynamic in college, I don't understand what would make anybody think that he would have been good at it in the NBA. He's 67 years old. I mean, it's not like he's going to change what he's done for his whole career. And so you could blame Beeline and clearly he didn't handle the job or himself very well, but this is just a really bad hire. Right. And is not being put in a position to succeed. I mean, this roster also doesn't make any sense. I mean, you have guys like Darius Garland and Colin Sexton uh, in the backcourt, and maybe they'll be good and useful NBA players in the future, but this is not a roster um, that's designed to win now, even under the best of circumstances. Then you also have Kevin Love and Tristan Thompson, guys who've won a championship and are are veterans who are not 
probably going to be happy about having the team be controlled by these like, you know, really young guards who are not going to lead them anywhere except into the the high lottery. Right. And so this is clearly like a rebuilding year. Beeline is, I guess the theory here is that at Michigan, he got a bunch of like guys who weren't the necessarily the highest ranked recruits. And he has, you know, guys like Duncan Robinson and Nick Stauskas or Karis uh, LeVert, Mo Karis Wagner, LeVert, Tim Hardaway Jr., you know, Mitch McGarry, Trey Burke. Like there's just a ton of Michigan guys in the NBA who played under Beeline, and you wouldn't have thought that based on their recruiting ranking. So these guys got better under Beeline, and so maybe the idea is we'll bring him in. He'll make these players better, but it's not like he's going to be there for a long time. Again, the guy's 67 years old. This is not a long-term right. plan. So, I mean, in, in, in my little speech there, I sort of blame Beeline, but he's not going to change. So that's all understandable. And then as soon as there is like a tinder of a problem that exposes the generational fault line. And we should talk about the thugs versus slugs incident. That was, you know, he lost them. Clearly he lost them. And there have been players that have come out and sort of criticized the anonymous sources that the athletic quoted players in their original reporting about the the problems inside the Cavs locker room. And then Charles Barkley blamed the players for turning on Beeline. But there was something also going on in that locker room, a dysfunction among the younger players and some of the older players. Tristan Thompson, after the first athletic piece in December was published, somebody showed one of the reporters, some of our reporters showed it to him. And he said, at the end of the day, if you're going to build a culture and a family, you can't have that chatty patty shit going on. That shit is whack to me. Everyone's got to look in the mirror. There's only so much coach can do. And there's only so much we can do. Do we have the best roster in the NBA? No, but we're going to go out there and compete every night. Guys got to look in the mirror. So I hope whoever reported that was just bullshitting and blamed it on a player. I do think that there's something to say that if Beeline had approached this in a more collaborative manner, you know, the sort of players coach approach that a lot of NBA players are used to, they might have been more generous to him when he made the thugs versus slugs mistake. Because from what I understand from the context, they're watching game film and he said they're moving like a bunch of blanks, which he said thugs, but it makes sense that he was trying to say slugs, right? But if you don't have any trust in this guy. And if you don't believe that he has your best interests at heart, that he values your input into forming a team, he's not going to have any credibility when he says he made a mistake, or you're going to be much less inclined to forgive it because you know that you can push him out. And I think that's what happened there. Yeah. I mean, Joel, this seems like a classic example of people that wanted him gone looking for an example yeah. of something to use against him. Right. And it worked. And I mean, maybe the reason that they wanted him gone was maybe this was actually a microcosm. Maybe he didn't respect the players and this was just the most kind of incendiary example of right. that. Well, and he also picked like the worst word <laughs> to, to fuck up with. I mean, thug, as we can recall, I said like five, five or six years ago when the mayor of Baltimore used the word and there was a moment when thug got a lot of attention in the media for its racial connotations. This is a 67-year-old white guy who has coached African-American kids for, what, 40 years? Right. Who used the one word that was a word, a word, not the one word, but a word that was certain to set off players, especially if they were looking for a reason to be set off. Remember when Phil Jackson called LeBron James's friends a posse? 
Yeah. And I'm actually even thinking, I'm trying to think of myself as a younger black man. And if a 67 year old white man had accidentally called me a thug, what I would think then is that, you know how on the phone, like when you're texting somebody and you accidentally text a word that you didn't mean to send, but it's a word that you use a lot. You know what I mean? Like it's a word that you might use. So you might say uh, park instead of perk or whatever, but you actually use park a lot in your personal life. And I just like, maybe the, you know, the players may have said, you know what, where did that even come from? That word is somewhere stuck in your memory banks. How did it come out now? That's a very uncharitable reading of what happened with Beeline. But again, it's not like he did anything to build up you know, some sort of credibility with the players. Their 54 games is not a lot of time. Yeah. Well, this is a season that they knew was not going to be successful from a wins and losses standpoint. So really all that Beeline's job was this year is to develop the younger players who are going to be on the next good Cleveland team and to, quote unquote, establish a culture. And I think that phrase can be overused and can be used to like, mean be authoritarian and like fine players and stuff but i think there's a way in which a culture can be established that's more like collaborative and player friendly and it's just really clear that he did not do that and it's not clear to me whether he helped or tried to help develop right guys and the other thing that i think about is that there's this culture in the nba that we don't see or hear about a lot of player development coaches like there are guys who are like the fifth or sixth assistant on the staff, whose their job is to just like work one-on-one with a guy like Darius Garland, to work one-on-one with the rookies on the team and to make them better. Sort of like, not selflessly, they're like getting something out of it in their career, but certainly not getting credit for it. And I just don't even know if like a head coach, is that right. even really his job? Well, but right. his job is to make sure that the the assistant coaches on the staff are assigned to do those kinds of things and to help build the culture that he wants to create. He's responsible for whatever culture exists there. So if the young guys felt that they were getting drilled on high school fundamentals, which was one of the complaints, and they were getting yelled at in film sessions, and that the systems that the head coach was implementing were rudimentary to the NBA, then that's where you're going to get resentment. I mean, there was even one example given in one of the athletic pieces about how Beeline's, the names that Beeline gave to- I love this. To plays- we're all named after wild animals. A curl is a polar bear. You don't go pro to do that kind of thing. One source. Told I'm in the, the NBA. Athletic. I don't need to call a curl a polar bear. Like, I love that that's the <laughs> yeah. thing that really. Yeah, I'm going to die on that sword. Go to the NFL if you don't like play calls with weird names. I guess the question is, and this is kind of what Tristan Thompson was getting at, Joel. It's like, if you're this bad as a team, do you really have a leg to stand on when you're telling the coach, like, that, you know, we shouldn't be coached in this particular way or you shouldn't yell at us. I mean, I I guess you probably do, but yeah. um, that's why it just kind of looks bad. And maybe for a player like Tristan Thompson, he's like, yeah, Colin Sexton, you do kind of suck. And like, you just need to get better. That's why we're not doing that well. That's probably true. And I mean, there's obviously an element of the players do share some blame in that. Who's to say that peak Phil Jackson was going to get more than 14 wins out of this crew, right? But I do think that there is some idea that elite players have a better sense of what they need for themselves and for a team than a college kid might. You know, so Darius Garland was is a successful basketball player. Colin Sexton was a successful basketball player. All these other guys that sort of fill out the spots on the roster, they've had success. They know what it looks like. It's not like 
they came to Cleveland and that's where their basketball education starts, right? They've had a career elsewhere. And also going back a little bit, it makes me think about the kids that played for Beeline under Michigan because he's actually been given a lot of credit for developing all these players or whatever. And I just, I'm just really dubious of the idea. Like I know that a, a coach can create an environment and an atmosphere that is conducive to improvement, development, and all this other sort of stuff. But like it, it tends to overlook the amount of work that players themselves put into their own development. And a lot of these guys, maybe Beeline's best talent was that he could figure out, you know, who was an undervalued recruit as opposed to developing them all himself and turning them into an NBA player. So I've always been sort of dubious of that. I'd like to hear them talk a little bit more about that, in fact. I think Beeline's success in college is unimpeachable. I mean, at Michigan, he leads them to two national title games. At West Virginia, I don't think there was any player that he coached that was drafted into the NBA, and they still had good results getting to the tournament and and doing well in the tournament. It doesn't necessarily mean he's a good guy. It doesn't necessarily mean that players liked playing for him. What it does mean is that in a college context, he had a system that worked consistently and got really good results. And that shouldn't take away, you know, the people that deserve credit for all the Michigan players that are in the NBA, the people that deserve credit for them being in the NBA are the players. The players. Right. For sure. Yeah. Um, and we don't know what kind of a coach John Beeline was in college behind the scenes because we really, you know, you don't have a lot of access behind the scenes. There was like some survey that said that his fellow coaches thought he was the cleanest coach in in the NCAA. He did this reputation for following the rules. But that's, again, among NCAA coaches. Like I, in this piece that I wrote about coaches being so mad about transfer rules in 2013, he was like, oh, I'm not going to let a guy transfer to a rival school um, without you know sitting out or, or give them a release because then they just take our playbook. Like that's not a guy who particularly cares about the welfare of the players. He wants to protect the sanctity of the program. Right. And so I don't know how much credence we should give to the fact that other coaches think he's this like clean guy. Right. And we also put a lot of stock in how we see coaches on television. So we think Tom Izzo is an asshole because he looks like an asshole on the <laughs> sidelines. And John Beeline never did that in college. Yeah. And again, there's no incentive. There's no way for us to really know what college players think of their coaches because they're definitely not going to say anything while they're there. And there's no incentive for them to say anything after, especially if they've gotten out of the program, because all people are going to do, they're going to jump on you on Twitter or people are going to say you've got some sort of motive, impugn, you know, your integrity or whatever, if you try to speak out against a coach. So it really doesn't do them a lot of good. But you're right, Josh, his success at those schools was unimpeachable. But what we don't know is how he went about getting that success and what he had to do to make players good. I mean, Bobby Knight was a successful college coach too. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about boxing with America's boxing fan, singular Joel Anderson, who watched the heavyweight fight between Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder. He will tell us what that fight was like. Tyson Fury won. That's my understanding. If you want to hear more and you're not a member of Slate Plus, you can sign up 
It's just $35 for the first year. You can do that signing up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Next Saturday in Atlanta, almost 700 men and women are expected to compete for six spots on the United States Olympic team in the marathon. 238 of the entered runners are men, and one of them would be fine running the 26.2 miles and then doing it again and again and again, but up and down a snow-capped mountain and through a scorching desert sometimes in the same race. He is 30-year-old Jim Walmsley, and he's arguably the best ultramarathon runner in the world. He has smashed records in races of 50 and 100 miles over unforgiving terrain, but he's actually never run a regular marathon. Joseph Bean Kahn profiled Jim Walmsley for the New York Times Magazine. He's with us now. Hey, Joseph. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Our pleasure. Really enjoyed the piece. In it, you write that the ultramarathon is home to the gutsy eccentric. The marathon is home to the type A obsessive. These really are two different sports entirely. And there's historically been very little high-level crossover of the kind that Walmsley is attempting here. But this dude is different. How? Absolutely. I was drawn to the ultra marathon because it's so outside of my skill set. I a three mile run feels amazing. <laughs> it feels like I've done a day's work. So seeing these guys and girls take on a hundred, two hundred, sometimes five hundred mile races is just so mind bending and mind blowing to the average person. Jim is this guy who's a little bit different for an ultra runner because he has a track background. He's come from more of a traditional running history. And then he happened to find his way to this unconventional niche of 100-mile races. Uh, Jim is definitely the best American ultra runner in the world, but trying the marathon, it's just, as you said, a totally different sport. So you put in your piece that when he was at the Air Force Academy and running, he finished 12th in the 3,000-meter steeplechase in his senior year, and then in the eyes of the running world, he vanished. Well, in the eyes of the running world, finishing 12th in the 3,000-meter steeplechase is not like the biggest accomplishment that you could you could have. <laughs> so this guy was like not on the radar at all as a track runner before he moved to ultras, right? No, I think that's true. I think if Jim had done, had been at Olympic level, I don't think he ever would have found his way to ultra running. He was on the edge compared to the regular world. He is absolutely elite. 12th in steeplechase is incredible. He's put up some amazing 5,000 meter times in college, but absolutely not an Olympic level. But, you know, runners come into their own at different ages. And what's fascinating is Jim came to this kind of in a backwards way, an unconventional path, but he found his niche in these crazy, long, gutsy, grindy runs. And now, I mean, he's entering this race as a complete wild card. So there's a lot of people who are like, he shouldn't win. He's a long shot. But there's also every race he's entered, people have felt that way. And Jim just keeps winning these races. <laughs> he wins 70%, 80% of the races he enters. So it's kind of hard to ever doubt him. How does somebody find out that they have the capacity to be an ultra marathoner? Because it's just seen, you know, to find out that you yourself can run 50 miles in one day or more. How does that even get started? Yeah, for me, I would have no idea how because three miles hurts like hell. Uh, <laughs> but I've talked to probably 
a dozen ultra runners now over the course of a few stories. Something a lot of them have said is they've tried a marathon and finished and never felt like they hit that wall, which is mind blowing. But I think these are people kind of, they're seekers, maybe a little masochistic, but they're looking for these barriers and these to push themselves to find empty and what that feels like. What's fascinating about Jim is that he never tried the marathon. Usually the conventional path is you run a shorter race, you try the marathon, then, oh, the marathon didn't quite scratch that itch. Let me try something longer. And for Jim, it was just, he knew he was a great runner, but then he kind of fell into this depressive hole, which I cover in the story, but during his Air Force time, and then he kind of needed something, needed to find some unscratchable itch and found it at 50 miles or 100 miles or longer. Yeah, one of the points you make in the piece is that ultra runners come from some dark places. And I think like to run up mountains at, you know, doing eight minute miles, you got to be crazy. And you also have to be seeking out the sort of the extremes of the human condition, psychological and physical. And that's what characterizes ultra running. And you, you also explore in the piece how mainstream runners, you know, people that run on pavement or tracks tend to look down on this because ultra running isn't just a physical pursuit. It's about something much more, the sort of the, the ability to tolerate extremes. And therefore, it's not a pure sport in that sense. I think that's definitely true. There is this piece of it that's about extremes, about tolerating truly awful conditions. Some of these races are 270 miles with a six-day time limit, and you're you know stealing two hours of sleep when you can. There's these crazy just like pushing the human to the limit. But there's also a bit, which I think is fairer, where trail runners, there is a much less deep field. It is a much less professional sport. And I think for marathoners, part of it is we don't know what an elite trail runner would look like exactly. I think Jim is a window into that. We're seeing what it would look like if someone got into ultra marathons in their 20s, trained in a professional sense, took it really seriously. And Jim explains himself as like type A for a trail runner, which is absolutely type B for a marathoner. But he's like slightly closer to a professional level. And we've seen that that's completely changed the sport. He takes course records at all of these trails, but for the to speak broadly about marathoners i've had a few marathoners reach out and be like don't lump me in with this but there are some marathoners who think of trail runners as less professional less extreme and there's some who think if we put the best marathoners into any of these races they would dominate and there's just no way to know until which is why this marathon is so exciting without venturing too much into stereotype what is the demo of your average ultra marathoner then? What is their background? Who are they? Where do they come from? It's so wide. Ultra marathons are huge in Europe. So there's a lot that run through the Alps. It's French, Italian. Of the American runners, I think it's kind of outdoorsy. Scott Jurek, who was featured in Born to Run, and is kind of the famous American ultra runner before Jim. He was famous for sleeping at the trail start and uh, rolling in the dirt when he finished. And it's kind of just like a very granola crunchy athlete. So there's 
more of that feel, I think, in trail running, whereas marathoners, again, these are usually elite college 5,000 or 10,000 meter cross-country athletes who then are studied. They, you see the mask. They have their VO2 max study. They have all this stuff. They have billions of Nike dollars spent on them, and then they get into these races. So it's much less crunchy and outdoorsy. Well, Stefan, you said that there is something crazy about wanting to run up a mountain for however many miles this is. And, um, you know, I think an ultra runner would say that it's crazy to be as regimented as you need yeah. to be to run a marathon or that any elite athlete with the amount that you have to train in this just hyper focused way and, and not only on skill development, but also on diet and everything that you need to devote your life you know, 24-7 to maximize your ability, there is a certain level of insanity sure. there. And so it's totally understandable, Joseph, that these different groups would not understand each other, would be skeptical of each other, would see each other as different species almost. And so it's interesting to hear about that. And then when you talk about it, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. Well, let me jump in there and just say that what I find really interesting here is how Walmsley is trying to make this transition. Is he training as a trail runner? Is he training as a conventional marathoner? Is there some pushback in his mind as to whether he should even do it that way, do it the way that the regular marathoners do? Or does he believe, look, I'm as fit as these dudes and I'm going to continue to train the way I train? Or is there some in between that he's found here to get ready for the Olympic trials? That's a really interesting question. I think he's definitely found an in-between. To give some context to Walmsley and kind of how he is trains usually, he runs about 700 miles. <laughs> he ran 700 miles in December. <laughs> So he, uh, Joel is shaking his head. Yeah, he is putting up these freakish, freakish numbers of miles. And and let's put that into context. What would a a top level marathoner run in a month? Probably 450, maybe, maybe 400. It's, it kind of varies. I've, I've heard as low as 70 miles per week. And some of them high, far end of the spectrum are at 150. So that's about a 600 mile month. He's running 700 miles. And his theory kind of is during the American marathoning boom in the 70s, these guys were, it was much more of a wild west sport. There wasn't Nike involved yet. There wasn't this scientific backing. And a lot of these guys were putting up these crazy long runs. Their theory was if I could run 30 miles quickly, 26 miles is going to feel easy. And Jim is stuck way more with that. He's added some interval training in. He's done some of that, but he's still logging every Saturday a 30-mile trail run, even through his training. And I think for him, his goal is like he had to get his legs faster. He had to get some of that professionalization, but he also wants to stick with what's worked for him, which is this basically like off-the-charts endurance. It seems like a lot of this happens out west. Like there's not as much. I mean, there are a couple of trails, like one in Tennessee, one in Georgia, right? But this ultra marathoning seems to all take place out here on the west coast. Is that fair? Like out in the Great West? That's definitely the feel I have. Is that it's this perfect race for you know Montana, uh, the Sierra Nevadas, things like that, where you kind of have this. You need lots of open space. You need mountains, all of that. I know trail runners, the elite trail runners kind of 
Klump in Flagstaff, Arizona, where Jim and a few of his friends live in Bend, Oregon, and these places where it's high altitude. Uh, both of them are over 6,000 feet high, which helps build lung capacity, but also are just kind of these sprawling, hilly places. I know uh, Jim said a lot of East Coast runners will look at his Strava, where he posts all of his uh, his runs, and be like, where are you even finding the elevation to be able to run these mountains? And he's like, there's literally a mountain in my backyard in Flagstaff that I could run that on the East Coast would be, you know, off the charts. And I think that's part of it is he has the, he runs in the Grand Canyon once a week. He has access to these big sprawling places and that's helpful. All right. So the reason that this is so interesting, the, these trials um, this coming weekend is that the range of outcomes here is so wide. So walk us through <laughs> what is the the best possible outcome for Walmsley and like how would that happen? And then what's the worst case scenario? Well, me and my editor headlined it the long shot for a reason. I think Walmsley has no business finishing in the top three. And that's what you need to get on the Olympics. Yeah. And that's what we need to make the Olympics is finish top three in this race. There are four American men who've run under a 210 marathon coming into the trials. Those were all on less hilly courses and things. So I think the General idea is round 210 is going to be what it takes to make the team. To run a 210 marathon in your first ever marathon would be mind-blowing. But it's also Jim Walmsley. So I talked with Dr. Andrew Jones, who's the most famous running physiologist. And he, by the end of the call, I couldn't help but figure out a long shot way for Jim to make it. Talk to marathoners, ultra runners, uh, running bloggers, and everyone kind of it's like catnip for the running world. They can't help but find the long shot path for him. But there's a very real chance that he tries to front run at the beginning, burns out, and finishes in 220 or 225 or something like that. And that's incredible for a regular human being, but that sets Jim up for absolutely getting dragged on the running uh, message boards, kind of proving the point of all these trail running skeptics, all of that. So the range is either fiasco or it's absolutely legitimizing trail running and kind of placing himself in a Disney movie if he makes the team. He qualified for the Olympic trials by running a 64-minute half marathon, which was the exact cutoff point, right? Yep. What do you think after hanging around this guy? Do you think he has a shot to break 210 and come closer and make this team? I think he has a shot, which I, w- I went into it not believing at all. I was kind of expecting him to be cocky because he gives a great quote in pre-race interviews, things like that. And I think as he explained to me in the story, he kind of understood the business sense of being a little bit cocky, putting a target on your back, doing all of that. But in real life, he's this incredibly kind of quiet, demure guy, but Every once in a while, he would kind of break into a grin. Usually he would be like, yeah, it's a long shot. I don't know. I don't know. But he would break into a grin and talk about maybe one of the front runners will get disqualified with this whole Nike issue. Maybe the hills, they won't be ready for it. Maybe the weather will be too hot or too cold. And you can see kind of the wheels in his head turning. And I just heard him interviewed on a podcast last week. And he said he thinks he could get 
he's like closing in on a 210 pace, which is insane that he's gotten to that in training. Because when I was out there, he was still training for his trail running. He still thought it was a total long shot. And you could see himself kind of talking himself into it, which is incredible. Does he risk the reputation of trail runners and ultra marathoners if he goes out there and embarrasses himself and, for I guess, lack of a better analogy, runs off the trail and gets lost <laughs> and, and, uh, and lose, which is a reference to what he did in his first ultra marathon competition? I don't know if there's like a reputation to blow, unfortunately. Like, I think in the marathoning world, there's a few guys who've interacted with the best trail runners and they have respect for them. There's kind of like a uh, romanticism to it. So there's respect in that way. But I don't think anyone in that world views trail runners as having a shot in hell in this race. I've heard a few people explain, like, he's giving it a shot. Who cares? You know, he has nothing to lose. He could go out there. I talked to Max King, who's a totally elite. He, I think he placed 12th in the trials last time. He almost made the Olympic team. He's now runs ultras. And he's like, if Jim finishes top three, the marathoning world will say, oh, well, that's just more proof that Jim was always a marathoner and trail running is still trash. He's like, mm -hmm. you're never going to convince commenters that <laughs> suddenly this legitimizes the sport. But I think that if Jim could do it, it kind of proves the point. Joseph Beancon profiled Jim Walmsley for the New York Times Magazine. We'll post a link to the piece, Can the King of Ultra Running Conquer a Race as Short as the Marathon, on our show page. Joseph, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, guys. And we'll update everybody about how Walmsley does on next week's show. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. And now it is time for After Balls. Slate ran a piece by Joe Holmes last week about world chess champion Magnus Carlsen, who's been logging onto chess sites, playing speed chess, sometimes while drinking and sometimes live streaming his games and doing play-by-play, -play, which is crazy. Holmes wrote, there's something hypnotizing about watching a guy known as the Mozart of chess, a player who is quantifiably better than Bobby Fischer, taking a big gulp of beer, announcing his position as completely winning, and then singing along to Dr. Dre saying, motherfuck the police, while coasting into another quick checkmate. The piece is really great, but what's really fun about it are the aliases that Carlson uses to play in these tournaments online. They include Dr. Drunkenstein, Danny the Donkey, Damn Salty That Sport, and then when he gave up or moderated his drinking, which he said was becoming problematic, Dr. Nickterstein, Nickter is Norwegian for sober, and finally, Magzy Bogues, M-A-G-Z-Y, Bogues. I'm kind of fascinated by your pronunciation choice there. Like like the famed Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. Shouldn't it good... be Dr. Drunkenstein? Did I say Drunkenstein? You said Drunkenstein. I said Drunkenstein. Drunkenstein. Of the New York Drunkensteins. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Stefan, what is your 
Magsy Bogues? Magsy Bogues. Magsy Bogues. The fallout from the Astros' sign-stealing scandal has taken an excellent turn. Little Leagues are banning teams from using the Astros' name. Josh, when you sent around a link to a story about leagues in Pennsylvania, New York, and California banning Astros, you wrote, it's so dumb, I love it. Yes, I would say it is perfect, low-hanging outrage fruit, and I predict it will spread like crazy. But it's also kind of awesome. I mean, if Major League Baseball isn't going to take away the Astros' 2017 title, isn't this a great way to shame the franchise, to let every impressionable prepubescent player and potential fan know that the Astros' name stands for remorseless cheating, and at the same time, protect 12- and 13-year-olds from certain taunting? (laughs) 2468, who do we appreciate? Trashdros! Or leagues could leave brutal, the name. Brutal, I know brutal. it would just be a brutal diss. Uh, leagues could leave the name, and our littlest Astros can embrace their outlaw status, bang on garbage cans in the dugout, grab their jerseys tight, rounding third after a home run, or they could go totally throwback, change every little league Astros to Colt 45s emblazon their jerseys with a gun. Our Slate colleague Nick Green interviewed Bob Bertoni, the head of Pennsylvania District 16-31 Little League, about his decision to recommend that his leagues not use Astros. Bertoni said that the Astros have been like the scarlet letter now, which conveniently also was an A. Uh, Banning Astros would prevent ridicule, he said, and also send a message about character and fair play. But Bertoni also noted that this isn't a lifetime ban. Next year, we could use the example that you made a mistake, you paid your punishment, now let's move on. Tell that to Pete Rose and Joe Jackson. Great interview, Nick, but the one question that Nick didn't ask was why use big league team names at all? There are compelling reasons not to. One is cost. Little leagues that name their teams Cubs and Royals have to outfit kids in officially licensed Major League Baseball apparel, which jacks up the price of uniforms. The additional costs are passed on to families in the form of higher registration fees and the youth sports industrial complex grows fatter. MLB started strictly enforcing its trademark rules on Little League teams in the 1990s. A decade or so ago, it threatened to take away a $100,000 annual grant to the Cape Cod League, the Summer College League, if teams with MLB nicknames didn't start buying licensed merchandise. Three teams with MLB nicknames changed their names, and three didn't. But the bigger reason to dump MLB names is that using MLB names is dumb. I read about how kids love to play on teams with big league names. Really? Some kid in Oklahoma is going to be psyched to find out that they're on the Giants or the Marlins? Let's say you're a kid who actually likes Major League Baseball. Say you're a Yankees fan. Say you get stuck on the Red Sox. That would suck. Here in Washington, the Nationals found a way around this problem by paying for the uniforms for all six little leagues in the city. This is very smart marketing and also brainwashing of little kids, and it cuts costs for the leagues, but it's also kind of ridiculous. They mix up jersey and hat colors and styles and combinations, but literally every kid wears a Nationals uniform. DC teams do also differentiate by putting sponsor and or team names on the back of jerseys or just by what the teams decide to call themselves. In the predominantly black Mamie Johnson Little League here, the teams are named for great black players, the Jackie Robinson Nationals, the Josh Gibson Nationals, the Ricky Henderson Nationals, Reggie Jackson, Eddie Murray, Ozzie Smith, Tony Gwynn also get team names. That's pretty cool. A 
friend of mine coaches in a different D.C. Little League, which last year included teams called the Cabbies, Blue Sox, Retrievers, and Dirt Dogs. No nationals in their names. Cabbies is for my friend's composting business, Compost Cab, which is emblazoned on the back of the kids' jerseys, which is awesome. Dirt Dogs, those names are a million times better than Brewers or Rockies. That's how youth sports teams should be named for fun or for absurd-sounding sponsors. Growing up in the pre-MLB licensing 1970s, my little league in Pelham, New York, had a sprinkling of Cubs and Cardinals and Yankees, but I'm very happy that I played for the Bisons, the Cherokees, and the Jets. Maybe not so much the Cherokees in retrospect. My last organized baseball team was American Legion in the Babe Ruth League, where all the teams were named for sponsors, Millbrandt Insurance, Bankers Trust, and of course, Cornell Carpet Cleaner. Sadly, sometime in the last 40 plus years, the Bisons went the way of the actual Bison. Today, almost all of the teams in Pelham Little League Baseball are named for big league teams. However, the girls' softball divisions, to their credit, have not succumbed to big baseball, Inferno, Racers, Vipers, Fire Sticks with an X. That's how you name kids' teams. Go Cabbies. Go Bisons wherever you are. Go Fire Sticks with an X. Josh, what's your Magsy Bogues? A couple of weeks ago, I saw a tweet from Ticket Stub Guy, Russ Havens, at Ticket Stub Guy. The text of the tweet reads, Sometimes ticket stub collecting takes you down a dark path. Check out the racist verbiage on the back of this 1953 Sugar Bowl ticket stub. And that verbiage reads, This ticket is issued for a person of the Caucasian race, and if used by any other is in violation of state law. Such person may be ejected without penalty or refund. Association reserves the right to refuse admission to anyone upon refund of ticket price, and this ticket is issued subject to this condition. I found another copy of a ticket like this from the 1952 Sugar Bowl game on an auction site, loveofthegameauctions.com. The description says, a testament to how far down we've been and yet how far forward we've traveled. A beautiful ticket with a sobering message. Like, you work on that marketing copy a little bit, but uh, minimum bid, $100. Final price, including buyer's premium, $135. So they got a little bit more than they were expecting. I had not ever seen this language on the back of a Sugar Bowl ticket stub. Before, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, but just seeing it written out like that is a pretty stark reminder of a lot of things, but uh, segregation in sports in the South, and it persisted long past the 1950s. But there's a chapter in the anthology, The Sporting World of the Modern South. It's written by Charles H. Martin, and it's called Integrating New Year's Day, The Racial Politics of College Bowl Games and the American South. It's really interesting. I think, Joel, you in particular would be interested in this. Um, It's just long kind of rundown of the politics of race in these bowl games and stuff that I didn't know. I mean, there are just a bunch of really bracing, remarkable, awful stories in here. And one that really stood out to me was about the Sugar Bowl that was played on New Year's Day in 1956. And this was a game that Pitt was invited to, and Pitt was an integrated team, and they had only one black player who was uh, Bobby Greer, a fullback. And according to this chapter, 
I'll quote from it, his solitary presence was sufficient to alarm rabid segregationists in both Georgia and Louisiana, in Georgia because the opponent was Georgia Tech. Before Georgia Tech administrators accepted the bid, they prudently verified that key university boosters and Governor Marvin Griffin had no objections. But on Friday, December 2nd, 1955, I'm continuing to quote from this chapter by Charles Martin. After receiving complaints from influential segregationists, Governor Griffin unexpectedly reversed course and urged the Board of Regents of the university system to prohibit Tech's trip. In apocalyptic language, the governor warned, The South stands at Armageddon. The battle is joined. We cannot make the slightest concession to the enemy in this dark and lamentable hour of struggle. Keep in mind that this is about one black guy playing a football game in New Orleans. There is no more difference in compromising the integrity of race on the playing field than in doing so in the classroom. One break in the dike and the relentless seas will rush in and destroy us. This is a year after Brown v. Board, so that's the reference to doing so in the classroom. All right, I'm going to pick up again with Charles H. Martin, who writes, Griffin, the governor, his dramatic shift outraged Georgia Tech students that evening. Hundreds of young men gathered on the Tech campus, eventually burning Griffin, burning the governor in effigy. As more students and sympathetic residents joined their ranks, the crowd decided to march downtown to the state capitol. Eventually, a mob of about 2,000 people assembled at the capitol building, where they hanged another effigy of the governor and damaged a few doors and trash cans. Still not satisfied, part of the group then marched to the governor's mansion where two dozen law enforcement vehicles and a phalanx of policemen greeted them. After voicing their complaints to reporters, the protesters peacefully dispersed and headed home in the early morning hours. The following Monday, the State Board of Regents met and debated Georgia Tech's Super Bowl invitation. And despite considerable pressure from the governor and militant segregationists, the regents approved the trip. I had never heard of a mob of outraged people in the 50s and the South, uh, white people, being pro-integration. And that was because they wanted their football team to play in the Sugar Bowl. Certainly not because they were um, fighting for civil rights, but it just goes to show you how self-interest can manifest itself. And so Georgia Tech ends up playing. They end up winning the Sugar Bowl against Pitt, seven to nothing, according to this description in this chapter. It's lone touchdown being set up by a questionable pass interference call against Bobby Greer the Black Pit player, and then um, the, the little description in this chapter ends. That evening, Greer broke another racial barrier by attending the awards banquet at a downtown hotel, mingling easily with several Georgia Tech players. However, he skipped the formal dance afterwards and instead attended a special party at historically Black Dillard University. And so integration had its limits in New Orleans in 1956. Yeah, man. I mean, uh, I've always said the passion for college football makes the South like crazy, like just what, <laughs> who they're willing to get close to and who they don't want to be by. Um, I, without being very negative, I just the Jameis Winston case is like always just sort of fascinating to me. Or like Baylor, like I'm just like, well, man, the South cares about college football so much now in ways that you would have never imagined, and like like during my father's uh, generation, the idea that people would like line up behind people that credibly accused of rape, like black men credibly accused of rape of white women on college campuses, all because of college football. But then it was only like a generation ago that they didn't even want black people like stepping anywhere near within campus. And I, I like, I wish there was some sort of way to distill like what the dynamic is there, like what happened there. But it's just really weird to me. And I made that a lot less fun 
than uh, it was when you started, Josh. I mean, in fairness, the story I told was not particularly fun, Joel. I don't you read it with some verve. <laughs> no, I was. I, I, I thought that it was fun when you said, dude that collects ticket stubs, and then it stopped being fun <laughs> after you read his Twitter handle. Right, yeah, that's a fair point. Sorry about that. But no, that's incredibly well said, Joel. I mean, that is like a whole dissertation there, what you just said about kind of the mental gymnastics that people undertake to support their teams and and how that has led to evolution or non-evolution in terms of racial attitudes. It's a lot to unpack there, as we say. All right, that is our show for today. We unpacked a little. Still some left to unpack. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, you might want even more Hang Up and Listen. In our bonus segment this week, Joel Anderson gave us some of the hottest takes on boxing. Anyone has ever, the greatest. You're the GOAT. Anyone has ever unleashed in the history of taking, let me say. It just seems like there's been this overcorrection where we just started putting in, you know, defensive ends and power forwards in boxing and letting them go at it. And I just don't think that the smaller, almost cruiserweight sized guys of the, the past would have much chance standing in against a Tyson Fury or Deontay Wilder, who may have the, the heaviest hands in the history of boxing. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus, which is $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zamo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.